one of the functions of stories, or it means one of the things that stories do is that they become they become the homeland. As you speak of the lost homeland, you create uh, you create with language a sort of place to be. I am Sophia Samatar. I am speaking from Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is where I live. My pronouns are she, her, and I am a futurist, a fabulist, and a memoirist. Sophia Samatar's 2014 debut novel, A Stranger in Alondria, won the World Fantasy and British Fantasy Awards for Best Novel. Her second novel, The Winged Histories, returned to Alondria, telling a story of war and rebellion from the perspective of four different women. Critic Jason Heller called it circuitous and hypnotic, and said that it underscored one of Samatar's profound themes how words make us, every bit, as much as we make them. This is kind of hard to articulate, but what I'm thinking of is the the strange kind of comfort and solace that comes out of um, singing and repeating lines like, you know, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. I mean, this is about, this is people singing of someplace that is lost, but then the music and that language becomes in a strange way a place or almost a, a substitute for a place. And I think a lot of um, literature of exile and of loss of places does that. In 2017, Sophia published a collection of stories called Tinder. And in February of this year, her most recent book, Monster Portraits, was published. It threads together autobiography with accounts of fantastic creatures illustrated by Sophia's brother. Publishers Weekly called it remarkable, and Amala Motar wrote about it in a review for NPR, saying its author's encounters with the creatures depicted spark real-world musings on race and diaspora, framing the often contradictory ways in which we represent, consume, or reject monstrosity. And so, okay, you could say, well, I'm interested in the in-between because I'm this in-between person. I'm between these different ethnic groups. I'm between different religions. I'm between, you know, different cultural histories and so on. Fine. You could also say in my career, I'm between, um, you know, sort of critical and creative writing, right? I, I, I teach literature. I don't have a degree in creative writing, but most of my most of my work is is creative writing, is novels and stories, right? So I'm kind of, and in, on an academic in an academic sense, I'm sort of in between. So there are many reasons for me to be interested in margins, but I really would say that my my passion for the margins goes beyond these things, and it comes down to where the life is and where the energy is and where the interesting stuff is. Where uh, I'm interested in what's happening at the edge and in what often doesn't become official history. Last year, Sophia spoke with us about, among other things, belonging, identity, jazz, feeling lost in life and in stories, and how we might use language to build and remember home. 20 years ago, when I started writing, when I started writing A Stranger in Alondria, that was very much, I mean, I was even, I even thought that quite um, explicitly to myself that this I'm making a place where I can be and it didn't mean that it was going to be um, you know conflict free or anything like that because that would have been boring but um, but it did mean 
a place where I could drop down and I could walk around and there would be no surprise among any of the people I met. It would just be obvious that I was a Laundrian. So I had this idea of creating that kind of place. But now I think of it, um, I think of it in a different way now. I think of it, I think of it more um, as something that's embedded in the language itself rather than, you know, the content of creating a, a specific kind of landscape or, uh, or society. I'm Chris Cameroud, and this is a Storyological Pocket interview with Sophia Samatar. Well, um, I was born in Indiana, and then I lived, I lived there just for the first two years of my life, moved to Illinois, lived there for two years, then I lived in Tanzania for a year, then I lived in London for a year, then back to Indiana, then I lived in Kentucky for two years, then I moved to New Jersey, then I went to high school in Pennsylvania, back to college in Indiana, grad school in Wisconsin. Um, well, if it's a map of my childhood, we can stop there. And I will say that when I tell people this whole long string of things, the question I usually get is, was your dad in the military? Because they're thinking, why did somebody move every two years? Right. And I have actually, um, the five years that I lived in New Jersey, That's uh, five years is the longest I've lived anywhere, which is mostly why I always say I'm from New Jersey, because that's mm -hmm. the place I lived the longest, and I lived there as a kid. Um, but my dad was an academic. So um, I was born when he was in college in Indiana, and then he went to school, um, to graduate school in African history at Northwestern, hence Illinois. Um, and then he did some, um, he did research in East Africa. So I was in Tanzania at that point. And then um, we, the book was published. The book was published um, at Cambridge University Press. And there was some, I need to actually go ask my mom and find out why we were in London. I'm guessing my dad was some, had some kind of visiting position. Um, and then his first teaching job was at Eastern Kentucky University. So he lived in Kentucky for a couple years. And then um, the rest of his career up until his death two years ago was at Rutgers University in Newark. So that's why we wound up in New Jersey. Um, so it's a weird thing where a lot of times people don't, people don't realize how much academics move around. You know, there's sort of this idea that you get a, you get a degree and then you get a job as a professor somewhere and that's it. You live there. But it's actually <laughs> a very, you know, as you probably are aware, it's, there can be a lot of travel involved. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it says something that most people hear that you traveled a lot and immediately think military. It kind of mm -hmm. reminds me of what you said about epic fantasy. The, you were talking, I think, about how a lot of the ways in fantasy, people that travel, movement that happens is because it's a part of conquest or conflict as yeah. opposed to curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's um, one of the ways that I see epic fantasy as being very well named because I think that it's related to the form of the epic, which is, it's a form that is meant to define a society. And it's about how a group of people came to be who they are and came to have an, a group identity. Um, it's often an, an origin, kind of an origin story of that. And so 
it it has to do with with large migrations of people and it's quite triumphalist often because people are telling a story that they they want to be repeated this is how they want to be remembered and so a lot of times it has to do with all the people that they fought and overcame and how a great leader triumphed or or something like that was religion a part of when you were a kid or yeah um my mom is Mennonite um and that is how my brother and I were raised as well I I well I'm always interested in what the spiritual background of people's lives is in general but in particular also in terms of epic fantasy I feel like at least from my early reading of epic fantasy it felt like good and evil had a very Christian kind of patina over everything like there was good and evil and good was going to triumph and there was a hell and a heaven mm-hmm. being raised Mennonite I don't know that much about their tradition I don't know what evil looks like from a Mennonite perspective or what good mm-hmm. looks like mm-hmm. that's a good question um, and of course I can only give the perspective of the Mennonite who is talking to you right now um, and so it's it's you know it's not going to be the same for everyone but in general um, so Mennonites are a peace church. So for most, and again, this is not absolutely all everyone, but, um, for the majority of Mennonites historically, um, evil has been war and violence and participation in violence and participation in the military. That, that seems about right. Yeah, uh. it's certainly, I mean, it's certainly there in, it's very much there in both, um, I, well, in all my work, I think it goes through all mm-hmm. my work. There is no, there's no celebration of violence without dire consequences for the character. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um. But I, I think what you say about fantasy and religion is really interesting. It's something I've been thinking about recently. I mean, there's an idea out there that that fantasy, especially modern sort of Western fantasy, grows out of a Christian tradition, right? Uh, mm-hmm. J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. And, and you know, there was a time when I, I thought of that as being sort of limited, you know, like that's just, that only has to do with, with those people or that specific time. And it's not something that, that kind of flows and trickles throughout the genre as a whole. But lately, I'm, you know, I'm not so sure about that. I think there, or at least I think that a lot of the literature that attracts me is not necessarily religious, but there is a sense of mystery about it. Mm. Um, that it's almost, you know, it's like a, a, a literature that's written in the shadow of the death of God, you could say, you know, it could, because it may be mm. you're making up, you know, gods and demons um, because you're actually not religious or because you're very aware that your culture is secular. But it's kind of literature that's written in that shadow that I find really interesting. There is um, maybe in uh, Fallow and a, and a few of the stories you've written, this feeling that that there is a there is a paradise we can't reach or an idea or a thing that we can't have. And I feel like a lot of your stories feature characters that are haunted by some some time or place that has been lost and it, it mm-hmm. did make me wonder if you if you felt like stories and religion was all built on top of this kind of immense longing i think so i mean i think so absolutely and i think that's one of the function one of the functions of stories or i mean it's one of the things that stories do is that they become 
they become the homeland. As you speak of the lost homeland, you create, uh, you create with language a sort of place to be. Is this something you feel yourself doing when you're writing stories? Are you inventing a place that you can belong or that you can be? Or is it not that personal, really? I think um, I would say it is, although I think it was more that way, you know, 20 years ago when I started writing, when I started writing A Stranger in Alondria, that was very much, I mean, I was even, I even thought that quite um, explicitly to myself that this, I'm making a place where I can be. And it didn't mean that it was going to be, um, you know, conflict free or anything like that, because that would have been boring. But, um, <laughs> but it did mean a place where I could drop down and I could walk around and there would be no surprise uh, among any of the people I met. It would just be obvious that I was a Laundrian. So I had this idea of creating that kind of place. But now I think of it, um, I think of it in a different way now. I think of it, I think of it more um, as something that's embedded in the language itself rather than, you know, the content of creating a, a specific kind of landscape or, uh, or society. What do you mean is embedded in the language? The, the sense of home? Yeah. And I, I think, um, let's see, this is kind of hard to <laughs> articulate, but what I'm thinking of is the, the strange kind of comfort and solace that comes out of um, singing and repeating lines like, you know, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. I mean, this is about, this is people singing of someplace that is lost, but then the music and that language becomes in a strange way a place or almost a, a substitute for a place. And I think a lot of um, literature of exile and of loss of places does that. Now, whether fantasy, I mean, with fantasy, it's kind of weird and different, right? Because you're, you're making up another place. Mm. So it's kind of hard to tease out exactly how that's related. But I, I definitely think that there is, um, that you can belong to a language or that language can afford a sense of belonging. There was a thing in Alandria, a quote where I don't remember who was saying it exactly, but they were saying words are sublime and in books we may commune with the dead. Beyond this, there is nothing true. No voices mm. we can hear. That that note, the kind of what you were talking about there, about how language can bring back to us a sense of place, a sense of belonging, or in the case of fantasy, invent a place that we can belong. And even, you know, like a lot of your stories do wonderfully, invent a place that has been lost that we can long for along mm -hmm. with your characters. I feel like, though, there's also, especially in Alandria, this, this note of a, a feeling that the characters in your stories and the stories themselves are both very celebratory but a little mistrustful of stories mm -hmm. like i think also of selkie stories are for losers where that character is really they they clearly know a lot of selkie stories but they're not really having it as far as wanting to believe in them yeah how do you think about that that sense of celebration and that sense of a little bit of mistrust um i guess i maybe i have problems with 
um, celebration that is somehow 100%. I mean, I feel like um, it's great to celebrate things, but I also like, um, I always, I always have kind of a, a sort of check on that or an impulse to temper that celebration or to um, not to get to the point where you're so caught up in it that you can't get outside it and look mm. at it and evaluate it. And I think that as much as celebration with others is beautiful, it also is something that needs you need to kind of step back and look at it every once in a while and say, okay, well, where you know, what direction are we going here? What what are we celebrating? And um, and and to maintain your critical eye and ear, I think that's really important. So that comes, and I think that's you're, you've seen that um, very accurately in my work. I mean, even the the quote, what you quoted from a stranger in the laundry, I'm pretty sure that it is some devotee of the stone who is saying that, whether mm-hmm. it's the priest or his daughter, but you know, somebody who is part of a cult of writing that is murdering people mm-hmm. right you know so they have these beautiful ideas about reading books and and connecting with the dead and and living a, a really very purely literary life um and at the same time you know that celebration of literature goes too far you've said somewhere that in terms of your critical eye that you feel like uncritical reading teaches you maybe more how to write mm. I wonder if you could talk about that, why why you think the uncritical eye might help you write, but it sounds like the critical eye might help you, I don't know, be a better person. Yeah, and I also think it helps you write. I mean, I, I, think, um, I think both are important. And I guess I probably do, however, think that the uncritical reading, by which I mean a reading in which you're swept up you're just completely transported and you are immersed in that work and you're not stepping outside and looking at, you know, structure and so on. I mean, I think that that's very important to keep in mind. And I guess the reason that I emphasize that side is because it's a side that tends to get lost when people start talking about how to write and people start Mm -hmm. talking about craft and, you know, it all turns into this like nuts and bolts thing where people are, you know, people are reading things not critically as in um, as in criticizing, but critically as in analyzing structure. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think there's a place for that. And there are times when there are works that I love and I will go back and, and sort of diagram and really examine structure and say, how did this person come, you know, how did this person organize this story? And then I might attempt something similar. But the love is really the essential part. And I sometimes worry that that gets lost. Mm. What needs to happen if you're going to write is that you need to internalize. You need to internalize the language. So it's the same thing if with like learning a foreign language. Okay, you study all the grammar and all that, but at some point that the goal is to actually forget that you're speaking a foreign language and it becomes yours and you speak it, you speak it impulsively and naturally. And I think the same thing about writing. So when you read if a book is going to help you to become a better writer, you have to be completely absorbed. You have to be completely immersed in that work. And then you start internalizing structures and language and things that can't be taught with a critical view start happening. And I think those things are essential. I mean, if you don't love to read, 
I don't know why you would write anything. That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> um, do you remember or have any idea what the stories were when you were a kid that might have been, you know, the earliest structures or forms that you internalized? That is a good question. Okay, going back as early as I can, earliest things that I was reading, I remember really loving Enid Blyton's naughty books. Do you know the naughty book? They're like this little elf and he's got a bell on his hat and he has like a gnome <laughs> friend named Big Ears and they go around and get in adventures. He's got a car. They're really weird. Um, mm. But those... Um, which I read when I was little, when we were living in England, those are probably the earliest books that I can remember because I must have been maybe five. Now, was I internalizing the structure <laughs> of Enid Blyton's storytelling? I hope not. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I, no, it's not fair to say I hope not. I mean, she's, mm -hmm. she's, she's shaggy and rambling, but she's definitely mm -hmm. got something because, because uh, you know, kids still adore her. Mm -hmm you know, um, yeah. all these many years later, but, but certainly the images and the idea of, uh, of, um, these little kind of elves and gnomes and these little secret world and little secret houses and toys would come to life and all that kind of, um, magical imagery, I would say I definitely, um, very much absorbed. Yeah, it does feel like your stories have, it's almost like your stories have other stories inside them that come to life, kind of like mm, those toys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has that always been something that, that as a reader you've really adored when the stories you read seem to be made up of other stories? It's maybe my favorite thing. <laughs> um, I love it. Um, that is a big influence of um, the Arabian Nights or the Thousand and One Nights. Also, mm -hmm. something that I was reading pretty early in in children's versions. Um, but I love that. I love embedded narratives. I love that sense of deepening and opening and the sort of increasing complexity of the world and the material that I'm reading. Um, I really love it. I also really love what I think of as different textures in writing. And this you find in, um, you know, maybe not in the kids' versions, but in other um, versions for grown-ups um, of The Thousand and One Nights, where you get, not only do you have the embedded stories, but also all of a sudden there will be poetry, people will be reciting poetry. Or, or um, you know, Tolkien, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, something I loved about those books when I first read them and ever since was uh, that suddenly you can come across a song, suddenly you can come across a poem. And and the the kind of collage feel that that gives to the work uh, in, in, in terms of, of the language, kind of one type of language pushed up against another, I really, I think there's a lot of energy in that and I really love that. How important for you is seeing and listening as a person and as a writer? You mean like in daily life, kind of walking around, seeing and listening? Well, I, I mean however those words hit you. But I, I could tell you, yeah, I was thinking like how much as a person when you're interacting with people, mm. are you thinking about seeing them or thinking about listening? And listening in particular, I was thinking about because reading your stories, I feel like so often your stories are written from the point of view of someone who is writing to someone. Mm. 
mm-hmm. or written from the point of view of someone who has failed to receive a letter. Like somehow their ability to listen, the, the ability to listen is either cut off or paramount. Mm, that's very observant. Um, well, of course, I think that these things are these things are extremely important. I mean, it sounds almost like banal to say, right? I mean, yeah, it's right, very yeah. important to listen and to look <laughs> at people. This is very important. Um, I get a, I get a lot of practice. I get a lot of practice with that because I am a, a teacher, um, and so my job involves a lot of really careful listening to students to kind of figure out where they are and then how we can go on or, or if listening carefully to what they've said so that I can see what's missing, you know, and so that I can kind of direct them or push them to think a little deeper and so on. So there's really, really careful listening. There's very, very careful reading. Um, and I try to be observant in my life. Um, I journal, but I actually, I'm, what I'm good at is reading and foreign languages. Like those are the two things I'm really good at. And unfortunately, I'm often not that great at observation in daily life, and my memory is terrible. So notebooking, journaling helps with that. It helps me to like remember what happened in my life, but I really wish that I was better at being where I am and paying attention to what's going on. Like I have no sense of direction. I'm the person who's always lost. I'm just, I'm really not naturally observant. I have to really Mm. concentrate. It's much easier for me to just read a book. Reading your collection of stories, um, it struck me how varied they are. Like, I never felt like I was reading someone else's work, but I did feel like there are all of these different kinds of writing from Mm -hmm. in terms of genre or in terms of tone. I wondered how, as a writer and and as a reader, you know, someone who loves books, how you think about voice. Is that something you think about? Is that something you care about? Yeah, I guess a lot of times it's something that it's been something that I've been a little nervous about because I I get the impression that one is supposed to have one, um, <laughs> that one is supposed to have a voice. And I've always been a bit concerned that I don't. So the first volume of um, Best American Fantasy and Science Fiction, the um, guest editor was Joe Hill and mm-hmm. two of my stories were, he, he picked, you know, selected, blind selected two of my stories. And he later wrote to me and was like, I can't believe the same person wrote both of these stories. <laughs> you know, like he was, he, he, no way did he think that he was picking two stories by the same person. Um, mm. and that can be seen as really cool. Like, wow, I'm doing this whole variety of things, but it can also be sort mm. of, you know, make, it can make you a little bit anxious. Like, do I not have an actual voice that is unique and at least to some extent consistent? And it's it, it creates anxiety because when I think of the writers that I love, you know, each of them has a very strong voice and their, their work is very recognizable. So because I love those writers, um, it worries me that I am, am such a ventriloquist and that I absorb you know, in these Mm -hmm. um, intense bouts of reading that I absorb voices so much that I, I wouldn't say that I'm able to reproduce them. I actually don't think that that's possible, but I, you know, my, if I read two different things, 
that are that are each each of those has a very different tone, then I will write two different things that are very, very, mm. you know, very different from each other. And I and I don't see a whole lot of connective tissue between those things. But maybe somebody else would. I mean, I think this is this is one of those cases where, you know, the writer is not necessarily the best reader of their own work. And I, I hope that that's true in this case and that somebody else could say, no, no, I, I know a Sophia Samatar story when I see one. But but I do think that I, I absorb language. I really absorb language. I become saturated with it pretty deeply. And that that's part of what makes me good at foreign languages, you know, because mm. I'm good at absorbing somebody else's language and living in it and giving it back. And I think I do that in writing, too. So is that bad? I don't know. Probably. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I can, of course, cannot speak exactly to your anxiety. Uh, I can say that right now I certainly know what a Sophia story is. Um, I think I will continue to know. I also think I remember what a teacher told me, which was that voice is what you can't help doing. Yeah. And so mm, you, so you kind of, you don't notice it. You just, over time you just couldn't help doing it. And then, you know, people look at your work and like, oh, right, you did the same thing over and over again. That's your voice. And mm-hmm. then, you know, people get anxious about that. They, oh, I can't stop doing this one thing. Well, that's true. That would be another problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, on that, there was an interview that I heard you do with To the Best of Our Knowledge mm-hmm. that was about an essay you had written on... I don't remember what the, I think the essay, what was the essay called? Do you remember? I believe it was skin feeling. And you were talking about blackness and about visibility. And one of the things that you talked about was jazz and how you had taken a model of jazz into that essay and a feeling that the solutions you wanted to the discussions of diversity and uh, were unpredictable solutions. Mm. And that was fascinating in its own right. And thinking about unpredictable solutions in the world, I wondered if that was something that you continue to carry into your own writing or something that when you're inventing works of fiction, if you're engaging with that idea, if there's even even a way to, I mean, I don't know how you would do jazz as a writer exactly, because you're not on stage. You're not on stage, but you have certain materials and you have certain parameters and you have certain constraints and you mm. have to work within that. And you have to find the solution to your problem in the material itself. So, you know, if you're playing music and you're improvising and you're stuck and you don't know where to go, the solution to that problem, you have to find it in the chord. I mean, you have to find it in in what's being played, right? Mm. And, I, and I think that writing is the same. I think that, you know, when you get stuck, then it's time to look go back, look at what you've written already and see, you know, where did the path fracture to the point where you lost your way in the marsh, (laughs) you know, and how, where's the thread that you missed? Where's the possibility that you missed and go back and find it. Hmm. Something else you talked about uh, that you were riffing on in that essay was about exposure. There's a sense that, especially maybe as a critic, you've come across this, people read books and they tend to want to read it as autobiography tend to want to read it as exposing who the author is mm-hmm. and yet I, I do feel like as a writer I do feel really powerful when I feel like I'm exposing myself through the 
the veil of fiction. Like Mm -hmm. in the way that I think of jazz as being kind of scary because you're improvising and almost in the improvisation, naturally exposing yourself because it's coming out of you a little bit uncontrollably, maybe. Mm -hmm. Is that something you you want as a writer? Like as you're writing, do you want to surprise and scare yourself with these these kind of I think absolutely. I also think, I mean, the whole question of exposure that you raise um, is very interesting because, and it's it's one I'm thinking about more because I, well, I have a book um, coming out next year called Monster Portraits, which is, which mm. is a lot more autobiographical, although some of the stories in Tender get quite autobiographical. I mean, there's one story in there that is basically true. Um, I mean, factually true. Mm. Um, and so, and now I'm, I'm actually the book that I'm working on now is not fantasy at all. It actually is, um, it is memoir and it is very, it's very self revealing, I guess you could say. <laughs> and so, um, and, and the writing of this kind of work followed the skin feeling essay. And in fact, that mm-hmm. essay, which is also autobiographical, and I talk in that essay about stuff, you know, I talk about my life and where I was at the time I wrote it and things that that happened to me. Um, that was was in a way the beginning of this sort of more um, autobiographical trajectory in my work. It's complicated, isn't it? Because you mm-hmm. want there is a desire to um, be real with people. And then there is also a fear of not just of reactions to that, I think, but also of being boxed in because when Mm -hmm. you expose whatever it is you're exposing that that's true at that moment in time that you say that or that you write that thing. Um, But then on the receiving end, things tend to become quite fixed and you become like the writer of this thing. Mm-hmm. And people feel like, yes, we know you now because of this thing that you said, you know, five years ago, but that you're not that person anymore. So I think that that's, there's a weird dynamic there that I, as a person who's, you know, had, has published very little memoir at this point, mm-hmm. I'm still turning over in my mind how that works. I don't, I don't really get it. In the essay, uh, you discuss like hypervisibility, the idea that the more you're seen as black or the more you're seen as something the less you're seen as an individual it almost sounds like you're describing like the more that you're seen as Sophia Samatar the less you're seen as an individual which even sounds confusing when I say it but (laughs) yeah well I mean I think part of the reason it's confusing is because there are a couple of different layers or levels of what's going on I mean there's the there's the kind of basic level of every person who has a name being in a sense, you know, vulnerable to becoming a prisoner of that name. So mm-hmm. you become, you know, you if 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 I know who you are, I know you by name, then I attach certain things to that name and then maybe some some of your complexity can disappear under that. So there that's sort of one layer. And then there's the then there's the like Ralph Ellison invisible man layer, <laughs> right, <laughs> which is where which is where the which it which is the racial level where the more you see the person's race, the less you're able to see the person. So you do you mm-hmm. actually don't see the person at all because all you do is fill up that race category with what's in your head and you you actually can't see the person at all. And that one doesn't have to do with the name. That one mm-hmm. has to do with the color, right? Yeah. So so 
yeah, so having those things operating at the same time, that gets really, really complicated. What is the question of belonging for you? I'm not sure what I mean by that, but something about it made sense when I was saying it. Yeah, it makes sense. sense. It makes sense. I mean, so um, the question of belonging. I mean, so I grew up with two cultures, uh, actually more than two. But I mean, in my house, you know, my dad, as I said, was Somali. My mom, Mennonite of uh, Swiss background from North Dakota. So those are two very different kind of um, backgrounds, although closer than you might think in some ways. I mean, my parents both grew up with livestock, for example. My mom on a dairy farm and my dad herding camels. But, I mean, they both grew up with large animals. They both decided they never wanted to see a large animal again as long as they lived. (laughs) They were both very bookish people, very, I mean, they both love literature and, and writing and reading. And so, you know, life with the large animals didn't work out for them Mm -hmm. at all. And that, you know, that's actually a lot of common ground. But I, you know, being from the type of background that I am, yeah, there's definitely often a sense that "Mm, I sort of don't belong in one way or another or in a, and, you know, whatever group that I'm in, I might, you know, tend to be kind of the odd one. You know, like if I'm in a group of Mennonites, I'm the one that's kind of, hmm, like, not quite, you know, like most of the other ones. And same thing where if I'm in a group of Somalis, it's like, mm, I'm the one that's like mixed and, you know, doesn't speak Somali and kind of, you know, an odd bird. So I think growing up with that and continuing to live with that does make belonging a question. It makes me interested in how people belong with each other and in what, um, in what ways can people create a sense of belonging and how does community get created and where are the lines and where do borders get drawn and how can people get across? All of those are, are really um, important questions to me. There was a story, I think it's Fallow, which might might be my favorite right now. Hmm. My favorites change over time, but I really, I love that story. And there was a, there was an idea there about story or writing as a project of rescue Mm-hmm. Is that an idea that resonates with you, or is that an idea that just was born out of that character? Um, I'm gonna say both. Um, but thank you. Also, I'm so glad you like that story. It's a very, um, that's very special to me. It was written. It's you know, it's it was written for that book, so it wasn't mm-hmm. something that was published elsewhere. And it's my it's my Anabaptist in space story. Which is which is exciting to me to have to have done that. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think that well, actually, the idea of writing as a project of rescue, I think you, I think that's there all the way through. I mean, a stranger mm-hmm. in a laundria, right, is about this ghost, this dead girl, who is going to be who wants to be rescued through writing, and in the winged histories. There are all these questions about, especially women's history, and what mm-hmm. happens to it. What happens to people's memories? What happens to the people who um, whose stories kind of slip off the edge of that margin and are not recorded? 
And so there again, writing and, mm. and all the writing that the characters are doing in the text becomes this, this project of rescue. What is it that fascinates you about margins? I read, I, I have been reading your stories for a while, but in preparing for this interview, I just read, read all of your three books in a week. Uh, which was wonderful. I loved it. I did notice wow. a lot of margins. And I, the the story that Jevic writes of Gisevet in Alandria, she's a ghost. She's asking him to write a story. He ends up pulling a book out of a library and writing down in the margins. And in the um, Ogres of East Africa, I think mm-hmm. part of that story is also said to be written in the margins. And I really love the the resonance of the idea in also in Alandria, that the stone, they're these priests of the stone. And so they're the main priest that we encounter who collects the sayings from the stone, deliberately ignores parts of the stone that he considers incidental and orphans. They don't fit what he wants to say. Yeah. So what is it, what is it about margins? Well, it's all um, connected to those um, questions of belonging, isn't it? Because the margin is the edge. So it is that space, which often seems invisible. I mean, it's sort of ignored. It's not, you know, a, mar- a border is there to mark an edge. It's not really supposed to have anything happening in it. Hmm. And, but because it is a place between two things and because it marks inclusion and exclusion, it is an, a very interesting space to me and I'm always fascinated by what happened by the possibilities of the margins what can happen in the margins what happens in the unofficial space what happens um, in the footnotes what happens you know at the conference not during the panel but like when people go to the bathroom after Mm -hmm. and they have a conversation you know those those kinds of things that it's so much interesting stuff happens there, right? And it's mm-hmm. often so much more, it often has so much more life than the official version or what is officially on the page. And so, okay, you could say, well, I'm interested in the in-between because I'm this in-between person. I'm between <laughs> these different ethnic groups. I'm between different religions. I'm between, you know, different cultural histories and so on. Fine. You could also say in my career, I'm between, um, you know, sort of critical and creative writing, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I teach literature. I don't have a degree in creative writing, but most of my, most of my work is, is creative writing, is novels and stories, right? So I'm kind of, and in, on an academic, in an academic sense, I'm sort of in between. I mean, there's so many ways you can use it. You could also say, talking about my work, I mean, I, for three years, edited um, Interfictions Online, mm-hmm. which is that I was a, one of the co-editors of that online journal, which was all about interstitial arts, right? Which is a concept of work that sort of falls between the cracks of literary fiction and fantasy and science fiction. So there's another way that I'm in between. So there are many reasons for me to be interested in margins, but I really would say that my my passion for the margins goes beyond these things. And it comes down to where the life is and where the energy is and where the interesting stuff is, where I'm interested in what's happening at the edge and in mm. what often doesn't become official history. I imagine 
people would also, or they do, might make something out of, you know, living on the margins, living in between is a kind of burden. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're drawn to it as well. Is there is there something about being on the margins that, that gives you a way in that someone belonging wouldn't or gives you a, a perspective like a sight that someone who just belonged wouldn't you know is there are there times where you feel grateful about the in-betweenness um yeah I guess so I mean <laughs> it's, it's weird because it's it's strange for me to think of it as something to be grateful for and it's also strange for me to think mm -hmm. of it as a burden even though I've right. heard both of those things right yeah. I've heard I mean there's the whole like tragic mulatto narrative where it's like you got to kill yourself because you can't belong to any group and then there's like and then there's like you're the ultimate you know in the future everybody will look mm -hmm. like you like you're actually a being from the future that has arrived here now to show us <laughs> this post-racial utopia that is coming right. you know so both of those are are mm -hmm. just kind of really weird to me um, yeah, yeah. And, and those are extreme versions of saying it's a burden or it's something to be grateful for. But uh, but that's kind of where my mind goes when I hear those, mm. when I hear it described in that way. Um, because I, I'm just not sure that, I'm not sure that identity, which is something, I'm not saying it's not real. Like it's real because we make it real. But but it mm -hmm. is something that, that that is developed among people, right? And so... It's not, I'm not sure that it's, that it's firm enough to carry that much weight of saying this perspective that I have because of this identity is completely, you know, is something that you could not have unless you have right. my identity. I just don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's strong enough to take all of that. In in Alandria, there in Alandria, just the place, not even the book, just the place of Alandria. There is this. I think it was in Alandria. Maybe I'm speaking empirically in this island I'm about to describe. But uh, in Tiom, is Tiom part of Alandria? Um, it is part of the world that Alandria is in. It's not in the <laughs> empire, but you know, okay. again, these right. are these are academic quibbles. That's true. But I'm enjoying the idea that I would never refer. To someone that wants to be referred to as Irish, I wouldn't call them British if they were like, right. well, even, yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah. Um, but there's this idea of the teachers up on the mountain, the Shafi. Uh -huh. Yes. I wondered if you have a sense now in your life, like if there are, are mountains you know you want to climb, like a wisdom, either a wisdom that you're still seeking to figure out how to bring back from the mountain and put into your work or, or a teacher or, or something that you're, you're ready to go and search. What I can say is that I always have new, I always have experiments. I always have mm -hmm. a thing that I haven't done that I want to do. Um, and sometimes it will be related to um, a particular work, as I was saying before, that I love, where I say I want to write something that is, that is in, you know, inspired by that or I want to write something in the mm -hmm. space that I feel that work is creating I want to work there 
sometimes it's that. And then sometimes it's also sort of larger ideas. I mean, you know, like having started out writing fantasy and writing the fantasy novels and then getting more into essays after writing Skin Feeling and, and becoming interested in nonfiction, becoming interested in memoir. So kind of wanting to explore that area. Lately, one of the things that I'm interested in is plot, which has always been something that I have had a fraught relationship with and mm -hmm. often don't like. I don't like, um, you know, the way people usually think of plot or the way it's usually been expressed to me is sort of this is a series of events that happens through a story. So I really hate that, like, you know, you have to get a character from A to B. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea of planning, I never, I never was somebody who, uh, you know, makes outlines and plans what's going to happen in the book. But I guess partly because I've always disliked plot, I, I'm, I'm coming to find it quite interesting. Um, and, and I'm thinking about, um, thinking about it in, about plot in genre fiction, in fantasy and science fiction. Um, and, and the role of plot and what plot looks like and what plot could look like. So that's, I don't know, I might write like a meticulously plotted novel someday. You better cut that out okay. of the interview. People are going to do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can do that. But no, I'm kidding. You can leave it in there. I don't care. <laughs> it was something that I really love in your writing, which is a, I feel like occasionally you will break a scene or a person down into nouns. Hmm. Uh, I don't remember now if it's in Winged Histories or Alandria. Maybe you'll recognize it. Uh, but there is a description of a character, a moment, and it just says the light from the window, the curve of his brow, his hands. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of nouns. I yeah. like them. Or at least noun phrases. And, and what you were talking about plot, though, I do feel like from my time, brief time in academia of writing, there was a certain emphasis on the idea of characters were defined by action and yes. action is what made a story. And yet, mm -hmm. you know, when you break that scene down into those nouns, it's it's the feeling of what the character sees. You were showing me where emotion lives. Like there's mm -hmm. some movement, there's some action just in the act of choosing what to see. I'm happy to hear that you think that. I definitely agree. And there are works that I love. Um, well, I really love journals or things that are in the form of notebooks or journals. Um, so I love to just go read somebody's diaries, like, you know, Kafka's diaries, something like that, mm -hmm. or Virginia Woolf's diaries, where, where it's really, you know, it's there is no plot. It's observation. And it's sort of, you know, how I feel today or how depressed I am about my writing today. I find it very sustaining. Um, mm. I love that kind of writing. It is not typical of fantasy and science fiction, right? You know, if you take the kind of umbrella speculative fiction, uh, if you take that as a genre, it is a genre in which stuff happens. And, you know, the, the first people to read A Stranger in Alondria their biggest um, uh, criticism and what was really annoying them was that Jevic was so passive. Like this guy is just wandering around and he just kind of like falls into situations. He doesn't do anything. And I did, I mean, they were right, really, you know, and I, and I, <laughs> and I did work on it and give him some more, you know, 
he like makes some decisions now and he does mm-hmm. some things in the novel but but his character is that of a student he is a student mm-hmm. and he's basically like you know he's like a guy on study abroad who you know he studied the language and now he went to the country and and he's pretty clueless about what's happening a lot of the time he doesn't have really a deep sense of a laundrian culture and so he is kind of he's observing and he's he's taking in what's around him and i think that's legitimate i do and i think it's interesting i think it's interesting to read about obviously not everyone agrees but i think Mm. um i find characters who who are observing fascinating i find uh Mm. a character's vision fascinating it really intrigues me one of my favorite bits of writing advice a writer named Michael Knight told me more important than what a character was thinking was what they were seeing it's something I enjoy when I see other writers do it that Hmm. by the careful choosing of of some detail that gives me more than any anything else that's good I like that Uh, I always like to end the interviews with a kind of questionnaire that okay. I I encountered through James Lipton. He had a show called Inside the Actor's Studio. He took it from a f- uh, French talk show called Bern- uh, hosted by somebody named Bernard Pivot. Uh, and apparently it comes from Proust. I have not gone back and looked at his questionnaire in detail, but apparently Proust was into questionnaires. Okay. But so I will ask 10 questions. Just whatever comes to mind, go for it. Okay. 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 So, first question, what is your favorite word? Opalescent. What is your least favorite word? Oh, my least favorite word. Wow, (laughs) this is bad, but diversity. What is your favorite smell? Mm, um, Geranium. There's a scented geranium. I love that. What is your least favorite smell? Mm, Least favorite smell? Vomit. What do you wish that you knew more about? I wish I knew more about quantum physics. What do you wish that you knew less about? Mm, what do I wish I knew less about? This isn't really an about, but I wish, I, I feel like I don't need to know this many song lyrics. Like of every song that I've ever <laughs> heard. I could, I could definitely afford to lose some of those. That is an amazing uh, lead-in to the next question. That's never <laughs> happened before. Um, let's, let's pretend your life has a soundtrack. <laughs> Okay. What song is playing when you're at your happiest? What song is playing when I'm at my happiest? Mm, this is so hard because I'm so bad with music. <laughs> um, what song is playing when I'm at my happiest? There just there there isn't there isn't a song playing. Mm-hmm. There's no song. It's it's quiet. What is your favorite kind of story? My favorite kind of story um, is taught and impassioned and unexpected, unpredictable. What is your least favorite kind of story? My least favorite kind of story um, tells me too much. Last question. William Faulkner who I actually thought of when I was reading Winged History. Something about Winged History has kind of reminded me of Sound and the Fury. Mm. I think maybe the the division into four points of view and the sense that time and history were 
um, pleasantly obscured, but then made clear by the end a bit. Mm -hmm. It's definitely an influence. Siski is also like a total caddy character. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I love Sound and the Fury. Uh, So he, he had a quote. He said that the only thing worth writing about was the heart in conflict with itself. And I wonder if Faulkner came back from the dead to write your story, what you think that story would be about. If Faulkner came back from the dead to write my story, <laughs> I would be yeah. like, step back, Bill. <laughs> this is not this is not yours. You can't. I don't believe that William Faulkner could write my story in any way that I would find acceptable, actually. But... Um, mm. To address the question, okay, say the last part one more time. Um, wait, the part where he comes back from the dead? Yeah, he comes back from the dead. Okay, no, say his quote. The only damn okay. thing worth writing about is the heart. Yeah, the human heart in conflict with itself. Yes. Hmm. And so if he came back to write the story of my life, what would what would he write about? What would what would be yeah. that kind of that central conflict of the heart? Right. Yes. Okay. Um what would he write about? He would have to write, he would have to write about writing, which is something people say you should never do. Nobody, everybody says people don't want to read books about writers. I think that's false. Hmm. I love to read books about writers. And it would be, it would be about, you know, constantly becoming a writer and always having to approach everything you write as if you'd never written anything before. That's how I always feel. I'm like, why can't I learn? Why don't I, you know, why isn't there progress where, you know, you've done something and then you do the next thing and, and you're like, yes, I, I learned this and I know how to do this. No. Every time I start to write something, not only is it as if I've never written anything before, but it's like no one has ever written anything <laughs> in the history of time. I'm writing the first thing ever written. Like, that's how hard it is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> maybe that's why. Maybe that's why you bring so many uh, passages with you when you go into a writing project. Maybe I don't know. This this has been amazing. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the great readings and the great conversation. And yeah, if you're ever if you ever come to the states, um, it would be great to actually meet in person. That would be very cool. Yeah, yeah, it would be very cool, and to have. Even though this was a bit of a conversation, you know, to have a conversation where it's not ostensibly me interviewing you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. All right. You can find more about Sophia at her website, sophiasamatar.com. You can find a version of this interview featuring informative footnotes and an illustrious illustration of Sophia by our very own E.G. Kosh at our website, storylogical.com. While at our website, be sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast and check out our past episodes and interviews of particular interest, perhaps those episodes in which we discuss Sophia Samatar's stories. Look for links to those past episodes in our show notes. You can find and like us on Facebook at facebook.com storylogical, and you can follow us on Twitter at storylogical. I'm on Twitter at kuvals, and you can follow E.G. Kosh on Twitter at you guessed it, E.G. Kosh. Storylogical is a podcast about stories, in particular short stories, in particular any sort of short story that amazes us. 
Sometimes we talk about stories in Clark's world, sometimes we talk about stories in Granta. Occasionally we talk about comics. Every episode we discuss how stories work and why they matter, and what it is about these particular stories that we love more than anything. If you want to support us in sharing that love, there's a few ways you can do that. One, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us, which is pretty awesome. If you are constitutionally, religiously, or otherwisely opposed to Apple, you could pick one episode, for example this interview, and share it on social media, making sure to tell people why it is that you love what you love. Three, you can head over to our new Patreon page at patreon.com storylogical, where you can pledge any amount of dollars a month and receive access to our patron-only feed. If you pledge $3 a month, you will receive a newsletter from me called Chris Reviews Everything, in which I generally fail to review everything, but it's the thought that counts, right? Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. Are you someone who absorbs the accent or absorbs mannerisms very quickly? I do. I I mean, my accent is muddy. It's muddy and it's changeable. <laughs> so um, it, it changes depending on who I'm speaking to. Like my kids can tell if I'm on the phone with my uncle, if I'm on the phone with my brother. Yeah. Somehow the people we're talking to kind of make us into different people. Like, I feel like Uh not just the sound, like we become slightly different people when we're talking to them. Absolutely. And if you're speaking another language, I find it's even more pronounced. Like, I feel like I have whole other personalities in other languages. Do you have names for the different personalities or can you describe the different personalities? I've never given them names, but I think... um, (laughs) That might be healthy. I think, um, I feel like in Arabic, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm definitely more, um, even more enthusiastic than I am in English. I use a lot more gestures and I don't know, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm more dramatic in Arabic than I am in English. And the gestures come with it. Like it's not just, it's not just the word. It's like a full body experience. Yeah, absolutely.